This is the English Sweet Podcast. I'm Gabby Norris. Today, Jim Esch and Shpresi Marai talk with Rob Bruder, the director of the Lone Brick Theater Company at Widener University. Professor Reuter describes the origin story of the company and their cutting-edge immersive theatrical performances at Widener and the surrounding community. Lone Brick Theater will be performing Metamorphoses, a play by Mary Zimmerman based on myths from Ovid's Metamorphoses. The play will be performed at the end of March and early April of 2022. So welcome to the English Suite. I'm Jim, and we are joined here by a special guest, Rob Reuter, the director of the Lone Brick Theater Company. And we also have a student uh, co-host today, Spressa Yumurai, who's appeared on the podcast um, a few times before. So welcome to both of you, Spressa and Rob. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Rob, we've been wanting to talk about Lone Brick Theater for quite a long time. I thought we could just start by introducing our audience to Lone Brick Theater, where did it come from? Also, if you could tell the story of how the name came about. Sure, absolutely. Uh, Lone Brick Theater, uh, as a company, as Widener's resident theater company, began in 2013. And it was developed out of a proposal that came out of the English department to kind of bring theater back to campus because we had lost uh, Theater Widener at that time. And the physical theater uh, Widener that stood where Harris Hall now stands uh, was demolished. And so we, as the English department, we kind of all got together. Uh, and, and you were there, of course, for, for these conversations, Jim. And uh, we talked about how is it that we make sure that, that you know theater presence is still there, that there's still that outlet and that we can still compete with other liberal arts colleges and universities in the area because everybody has a theater program of some kind. Uh, and so uh, a theater company was born out of that. But when the old theater was demolished, I, I kind of snuck on over there and uh, looked at the rubble and decided I was going to pick up one of the bricks that remained. It was a beautiful old brick church. And I picked up this single brick and looked at it and said, well, there's the title of our of our theater company there. There's our name. It's Lone Brick Theater, a single brick that both represents Widener's theatrical past, but is also the foundation for uh, our future. And so Lone Brick kind of filled, uh, uh, hopefully, was filling a void uh, in terms of giving us a theatrical outlet for students, uh, faculty, uh, staff, and also, you know, people from the community. And so Lone Brick was envisioned because there was no dedicated theatrical space on campus uh, and the very few spaces that were conducive to producing theater were uh, in high demand uh, for any number of other events. Uh, it became about trying to find innovative spaces and places and ways to, to perform theater. And hence we came up with our, our slogan, if you will, discovering performance in unlikely places, which had us performing in uh, classrooms, the basement of the university center, um, outdoors, kind of all over the campus, finding any place that we could. And so really what we focus on as a company is that idea of art as being something that does come up in places that we don't necessarily expect. 
Uh, and it's a, a generative process as well, one where we have to kind of troubleshoot, problem solve, and uh, not just from my perspective as, as the company director, but working in tandem with the performers and members of the crew, not to mention, you know, uh, the, the university administration uh, to figure out how is it that we make a, a successful show under the conditions that, that, that we battle against. And we're not unique in that respect. There are many theater companies, especially in the Philadelphia area, that have that kind of dilemma. That's what we look to do is, is to ultimately form kind of a collaborative company where uh, the students help evolve it. They, they help guide the direction that we take in terms of some of the shows that we choose, you know, what it is that we want people to see, how it is that performances are presented, so on and so forth. So it's really, uh, it's really about creating a company and a community within that company. I remember one show I saw you do, you had us walking all over campus and the, there were different scenes in different buildings. And, and, and you all have this reputation, I think, as being kind of an edgy theater company. Like you take chances, you do some really cool stuff. I know you've done Fringe Festival in, in Philly, correct? Yes. And, and it's, you never know what you're going to get from Lone Brick. Like it's always like a cool when you announce your new season, like it's going to be full of surprises. And I really like that. And last fall, you did a performance in Taylor Arboretum, correct? And I, I wanted to hand this over to Espresso to, because Espresso, you saw this show yourself. It was called Lovers and Mad Men, Visions of a Midsummer Night's Dream. Espresso, why don't you take over for a bit and just share with Rob your impressions and uh, some questions you have about that like really interesting performance. Sure, thank you. Um, I, I want to begin with um, my ride there because I made a big mistake. I typed in my um, on my GPS um, Taylor, I think, instead of Tyler, Tyler instead of Taylor. And I ended up in the wrong arboretum. <laughs> it was about 16 minutes away. So I was so panicking. Um, I didn't want to be late. Um, I wanted to be there from the beginning, um, but luckily I made it on time. I don't know, I, I may have flown. <laughs> I drove so fast, but I, I did enjoy the place so very much. It was uh, completely absorbing me as soon as I, I made it there, not just because of the setting, but I think I was at one moment, right after I had arrived, I was pulled into the play um, to roar, uh, to, to be the lion and, um, it was a little bit confusing, but it was so much fun. Uh, I was actually, I was hoping I wouldn't have to do it again. And they picked someone else because uh, I wanted to be watching it. It, it was amazing to be there. Um, but I, I just couldn't help by, um, uh, but think about the idea that you had to, um, to have this show in the woods because it was placed as if it was, it made me feel as if it was, um, I was in the garden of, in Athens. <laughs> Um, so when when you were rehearsing, um, at what point did you move the rehearsals in the woods? W was there any rehearsals um, done in the woods at all? Because I assume there would have been because of how intricate it was. And it felt seamless, but it must have been complicated because of so many plays um, happening at the same time. I mean, it's, I, it's, it's honestly an excellent question and a play of this ilk. You know, this goes back to what, what Jim had been saying in terms of trying to do something that's a little bit unique, a little bit edgy. Uh, and we're, we're constantly about 
breaking the proscenium, that traditional arch in, in the theater that we usually watch theater through. So of course, you know, the kind of complex logistics of a moving performance like this. Uh, yeah, it absolutely necessitates being in the space. We, we did begin rehearsals in, I would say, May of that year, May to June of that year. And then we officially moved into, um, moved into the Arboretum probably about a month before opening. And, uh, and those rehearsals were usually uh, on Saturdays and Sundays because uh, obviously it's the summer, but a lot of our cast also, we, we had professional area actors, we had you know, alumni, um, we had uh, active students all in the show. And so again, we had to work against work schedules and, and so forth. So it was really relegated to those two days. And making sure that you know people understood how 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 they moved from space to space, the performers, and, and then we of course had guides that were assigned to move audience from one space to another. Um, so yeah, we had we had probably a, a good solid four weekends of working the show in the space, and things continued to evolve once we got into the space because you had to be you know, concerned about the specific considerations of what the terrain was versus a level floor in any of our rehearsal spaces on campus. We did end up with one of our uh, performance spaces was completely flooded out. We had a really big rainstorm. I can't remember exactly when it was, maybe like two and a half or three weeks before we opened. And, uh, and so the landscape entirely changed in the Arboretum because it's right on uh, Ridley, Ridley Creek, I guess. Yeah. And so we had a, a one scene that was right by the creek and that had gotten flooded. And then when the waters receded, there was suddenly this giant log in the middle of the scene or part of a tree that wasn't there before. So we had to reimagine what it looked like to integrate this, this new kind of interesting set piece, if you will. So, I mean, those were some of the challenges where we're combating with the natural environment. There was a a hornet's nest, I think, under one of the trees in a principal performance area that we used where a couple of the characters hung out underneath the tree. We had a lot of falling limbs at different times, but the, uh, the, the caretaker of, of the, the Arboretum, uh, Tom Kirk, was exceedingly helpful in going ahead and making sure that things were cleared and prepared for us. But in terms of challenges, obviously there are those natural ones, the weather, because we're dealing with late summer. So it was exceedingly hot. And, and a lot of our rehearsals were during the daytime when the, the Arboretum was officially open. Uh, so we're in broad sunlight. People are sweating. Uh, one of our performers discovered that they had an, a tree allergy at some point, <laughs> which was not really helpful in an Arboretum. And that was Kirk Reichert, who played uh, who played Bottom in 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 the show. And uh, outside of that, you know, some of the other complications that that you have in a space like that, or that you run into in a space like that, is um, how ultimately do you make sure that the size of audience can still see from these kind of unique vantage points and are still getting an entire story? So it was a lot of having to walk through the show multiple times as an audience member to see, is this all connecting the way that it should? A lot of it's about timing. And I guess that's an expected challenge with a show of this type, but, um, but that's, those are the kinds of things that we really ran up against.
It makes sense. Um, on, on top of everything, the show was a fantastic um, timing for it because of the pandemic. So for me, it felt like such a big relief to be in an in-person um, show. And I, I really, I loved being, feeling like I was part of the play, um, being led from one scene to another. And I didn't, I actually didn't realize until later that there were mini acts that were being played simultaneously in the other pockets of the woods. And I was there for the last show. I think it was the last show, um, Sunday afternoon. And I remember thinking, uh, what a great idea to invite people to experience the play more than once. And perhaps spark a conversation in between um, the audience. So um, how, that was a, a wonderful idea. How did you uh, come up with that idea? <laughs> That's, uh, again, another great question. So you, you were there for the, the Sunday afternoon performance. That, that evening, we had a whole bunch of people in costume come to the show. It was wonderful. I, I wish you had seen that. Some people came in audience, had more elaborate costumes than we did. It was, it was wonderful. Um, but as, as far as, as kind of planning that, sure, it was a, uh, it, it's ultimately a theatrical styling um, or a theatrical genre called immersive theater uh, that it's predicated on. And immersive theater is all about exactly as you said, your experience with it being feeling like you become a part of the show, that you as an audience member are no longer looking at this separate entity, but either join the world of the show or uh, become an interactive kind of component of the show. And this is probably, what, what would I say? This is our fourth, fifth, probably our fifth immersive piece that we've done with Lone Brick. With immersive theater, I had, I had seen some of it in the late 1990s and, and then was really inspired by um, Third Rail Projects production. They're a company up in New York, a movement and, and theater-based company in New York. And they did a piece called Then She Fell, which was based on the works of Lewis Carroll. And you were in an asylum, essentially, which it actually was first staged at a, an abandoned asylum in Brooklyn. Uh, and then it moved to a permanent residence in Brooklyn where uh, you were taken through essentially like the minds of Lewis Carroll and Alice Liddell encountering different characters from, you know, through the looking glass and Alice's adventures in Wonderland. And it was uh, this very kind of claustrophobic, paranoid driven piece, if you will. And that was, uh, that was one where different scenes evolved at different times. And so from my perspective as a director, and because I'm, most of my scholarship in literature has to do with horror literature. And so I'm, I'm a very big fan of Poe. I took a similar approach to a degree using the works of Edgar Allan Poe. And we workshopped an immersive piece on campus uh, back in 2014. And then the following year, we did our first fringe production, which was another outdoor locale at historic Rittenhouse Town in Philadelphia. And it was a play called Dissever My Soul that was all about Edgar Allan Poe's final days uh, of life, which are all veiled in mystery because we don't know exactly where he was for several days. And then he shows up back in Baltimore when he was supposed to be going to New York. And so it, it looked at, you know, what Poe did in those final days, and it became the story of him descending into the world of his own creation. 
And so the audience was limited to about 12 audience members per performance. And they went in with Poe and experienced this going throughout the woods into all these very bizarre locations. So they came upon the old man from the telltale heart laying in the, on a bed in the middle of the woods um, and trying to get them to take care of him and things like this. Uh, but multiple scenes happening at the same time there, we had upwards of, I think, seven scenes happening simultaneously and over 42 unique scenes in the show. And we did this again the following year with a follow-up to the Poe piece. And we've done it a couple of other times. But when it came to the, the pandemic and I was trying to figure out what do we do for a piece that will garner some attention that's a good work for, um, for Lone Brick to be tackling, I had long wanted to tackle Shakespeare with Lone Brick. And I said, well, what's better, an outdoor piece, we use a Midsummer Night's Dream, and Widener owns an Arboretum. We have a great connection here. Let's do it. The best part about a Midsummer or Lovers and Mad Men is we had a Midsummer Night's Dream as our basic structure. So Shakespeare, of course, already gives us the story by and large. Um, but we added our own kind of unique elements to, you know, make it a bit darker. Uh, we in integrated the use of, of some of uh, Shakespeare's other supernatural or magical characters like Hecate from Macbeth. Uh, Caliban and Ariel from The Tempest to kind of escalate that element of magic in it. And so, I mean, that's that's really where a lot of it came from. The other element would be that during the pandemic, I, I was teaching multiple classes uh, when we shut down to very different classes. We were in the midst of reading A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, and that's where the idea for this type of show first came up was how is it that we go ahead and, and, and make an immersive theatrical piece. I had all four of my classes kind of work together on this singular project of trying to develop individual scenes for a show like this. And uh, we called the project Lovers and Mad Men. So that's kind of where our title originated was from that project. But uh, the final product obviously looked very different than what it was that that project yielded. Rob, who who did the script for that play? Was it was it? Did you adapt it or someone else? I, I did. I, I adapted it, and um, then I called in uh, Dr. Annalisa Castaldo, who obviously is an expert in early modern drama, uh, and uh, she came in to do a lot of refinement of language and also to write these kind of interlude scenes. So we had the main scenes of A Midsummer Night's Dream uh, massively reduced. And then between each one of the scenes that every audience member saw, there would be these short interludes of two or three other scenes happening. So the audience would be broken into groups of two or three uh, and they would see different stories unfold as uh, as the play progressed and then they would come back together to see one of the scenes that was directly out of midsummer so there was a lot of consultation with with annalisa on that uh and also my my co-director melissa maude was uh, was also involved in the uh the adaptation itself the initial adaptation itself one last question um was it the first time that the Lombric theater uh, attended the Phyllis Fringe Festival um, with uh, Lovers and Mad Men, or this was, it was our. Let's see. I'm going to try to. I'm trying to go back to remember. Um, that was our fifth 
entry in in the Fringe Festival. We had uh, we were in the 2016, 2017, 2019, 2020, and and 2021. So yeah, it was our fifth entry. Uh, we took one year off. Otherwise, we had been kind of uh, regularly running in the Fringe Festival since 2015. Well, I, I definitely look forward to the next play. Um, I can't wait for it. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. When is the Fringe Festival? Um, it, it runs usually the first week of September through the first week of October every okay. year. Uh, so it's about a month long and it takes place all throughout Philadelphia and, and the suburbs of Philadelphia as well. Cool. Well, let's look ahead to this semester. I know you're working on a new play and I was excited to see that you're doing uh, Metamorphoses, a play by Mary Zimmerman. It looks like an adaptation of selected stories from Ovid's Metamorphoses. I, I don't know much about the play. I, I love Ovid. I, I teach him frequently. But I want, what, what led you to pick this play? What do you like about it? And what, what are your plans for it? The, I, I mean, something honest, I've, I've been wanting to do the play. I saw uh, Metamorphoses, uh, my God, it's been 20, 21 years about since it premiered around about that on Broadway, uh, 20 or 21 years. Uh, so I'd seen it back then and, and fell in love with the show. Um, because it was so unique, you know, we were talking about this very modern perspective on the notion of, of, of transformation and what it means in the, in the 21st century, late 20th and 21st century. But the staging was so unique to me that you walk into this space and where, you know, there's dry land traditionally, you're seeing this enormous pool of water that is at varying levels. And, and again, just such a unique a unique stage where there's a small deck that surrounds the pool that's about three feet wide. And, and that's it. It's a pool and a small deck, but the way in which water becomes so central and obviously symbolically is, is kind of a, a, a motif itself of, of transformation um, of change of cleansing of all these iterations of transformation Um the play was captivating. So I wanted to do it for a very, very long time and just really did not have, it's one of those things as a director where you sit there and you're hesitant to embark on certain pieces because you want to be able to do it justice. But after our last couple of seasons before the pandemic uh, and seeing the kind of work that, you know, both the company was capable of, and uh, thinking about things that would be engaging for, you know, the academic environment, I said, I think that we're in a space as a company where we can try to tackle a show like this. Um, because obviously, just as Ovid, it's, a, you know, it's poetry uh, being spoken throughout this show. Uh, so it requires a very particular type of performer, a very particular quality of acting. And it fit in perfectly with the rest of the season because we had Lovers and Mad Men, which was an adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And then we had Everybody in the, in the, uh, later in the fall semester, which was an adaptation of the morality play Every Man. Uh, and now we have Metamorphoses, which, of course, is an adaptation of, of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Uh, so this is something thematically worked out very nicely in that respect. I'm noticing in this play, like there's just a ton of parts. I mean, there's all these little stories. 
you must have actors doubling parts. I, I don't do you, how, how do you even like cast a play like this? It's uh, thankfully the, <laughs> the script gives us uh, what the breakdown was of the original production. Um, but there's, and I'm going to totally butcher this. I believe it's 86 characters. It might be more than that, but traditionally played by 10 actors. Um, so every actor is playing at least eight different characters. We have a few extra actors in, in our production. Um, one to go ahead and give more people opportunity uh, to, to join the show, to join the production, but two, to also reduce the workload uh, for especially students who might have other things that they need to do other than memorizing, you know, 10 different characters. <laughs> um, so yeah, logistically that's, that, that's complicated as well. And, uh, and so we had a guideline uh, obviously in terms of how to cast, but then a lot of it became about availability. A lot of it became about who's comfortable doing what, what is it that you can ask certain people to do? Because some of the subject matter of it is, um, you know, perhaps a little bit uncomfortable for, say, a, a first-year college student to be uh, taking on. I'll say that. We have a wonderful, wonderful collection of, of actors in here. Uh, the, the director of Widener University's Fresh Baked Theater Company, Lisa Cacharel, is in our cast. She has actually been in, uh, in all of our shows this season so far, as she was in Lovers and Mad Men as well. Um, we have... For four alumni of Widener, we have four standing students of Widener, and then the rest of our cast is filled out by some some area performers as well. So again, it's a very eclectic collection of performers, a very talented and dedicated cast thus far. And I mean, the play itself is is just such a such a beautiful piece. I mean, it's it's tragic, it's funny, it's terrifying at certain moments. Um, just just like the, the text that it's derived from. And so it's certainly a unique kind of interpretation of it, seeing what it is that, that Zimmerman has selected because we have the stories of, of Midas, we have Orpheus and Eurydice and Phaeton, some of the more familiar ones. We have Erisigden and Alcyone and Saix, Baucis and Philemon, uh, Eros and Psyche, Vertumnus and Pomona. Again, these kind of more obscure mythos that people are not necessarily familiar with, but all of them speak to, you know, this kind of universal human, human condition, right? This, the, the nature of mankind. And I think that goes back to why it is that Ovid remains so interesting is because it's, it's, it's a kind of universalizing message. It's, it's not reliant on being grounded in a single time period, uh, much like Shakespeare. Absolutely. Do you, have, do you have a favorite story from the play, like or one that you think plays particularly well or one that the student actors seem to be really um, relishing? <laughs> um, there are elements of all of them that I find beautifully compelling. Uh, and the one that that really stands out to me, and maybe it's because of how viscerally they, and the performers respond to it, uh, is is the story of Mira and Cyrus. I'm, I'm teaching that tomorrow, by the way. So wish me I, luck. I, I do wish you luck. I, I hope they're all horrified. <laughs> <laughs>
uh, I mean, for anybody not familiar with it, I don't know if it's really appropriate for me to give stuff away, but you know, it's, it's a story of, of incest ultimately between daughter and father. And it's all kind of encouraged by the daughter's lust for father. Obviously there's outside influences and so forth. I think Ovid essentially lays blame on the Furies, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so yes. What one of the Furies? One of I don't know why, but one of the Furies had it in for Mira. Yes. <laughs> and they, and or, here it's uh, Zimmerman uses Aphrodite for that. Um, okay. Which which of course is you know kind of antithetical to what it is that people might think of of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, but so much of what Zimmerman is writing about is about the duality of both people and the gods, right? Those dual natures where they can be very benevolent, um, but then be wrathful with almost no logical reason. And so, so yes, it's, uh, it's a very uncomfortable piece. And actually we do have a first year uh, student performing as Mira uh, and one of our, our alumni who actually has been with the company since it started in 2013. He was, he was in our very first production um, so he's a very well-seasoned actor and ultimately very compassionate toward his fellow actors. So people are very comfortable around it pretty quickly. Uh, and that's Jared Bernadowitz. Um, and McKenna Stein plays Mira. Jared Bernadowitz plays Cyrus. Um, But again, it's a, it, it's, it's a very kind of, I don't know, the type of thing that by modern standards we still look at and are like, ew, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Often when you think about stories like that, and I don't know how much you would get into a conversation like this in the classroom, I know I've talked about it on set, is usually these types of stories, when we see a relationship like that, it's very much something that is instigated by the adult, especially the male adult in that kind of relationship. You know, it doesn't make it better either way. Um but here the onus is, is being placed on the girl and by extension, this kind of supernatural element compelling her. Uh, so there's a lot of a question about, you know, the, the Jared who is performing as Cyrus had this, this moment of, you know, this character isn't a terrible person per se. And I'm like, well, no, he's not, he's not out there saying I'm going to have, I'm going to have relationships with my daughter. Um, but at the same time, though, of course, it would be something that I think would be relatively accepted in its time period, but I could be completely wrong, uh, is, you know, he is willing to commit adultery, not realizing that the person that he's doing it with is, is his own daughter. So again, there, there, there's kind of those modern mores and values that our audiences put or, or hold him to. You know, it's interesting in terms of that inversion and where does blame lie in this case, if indeed blame is a part of it, right? Or is it just what kind of happens? Things like this happen, and no matter how tragic they may be. And I mean, I, you know, I think that if, if you have students who do, who do see the production, there's, there's obviously some of those distinctions in terms of how Zimmerman treats the work and, uh, and you know, Mira is said in the play, they they talk about Adonis, they talk about her being turned into a tree, depending upon different legends. And then one is she dissolved into 
a shower of tears. And that's what Zimmerman claims actually happens. Um, but of course, in, in the Ovid text, uh, there's a little bit of the tree and a little bit of Adonis and a little bit of the tears, I think, all together, honestly. When and where will, will we be able to see Metamorphoses? It runs uh, March 26th through April 2nd at, at Latham Hall. So right on campus. And we encourage people to bring their towels. It's like going to SeaWorld. You get wet in the first few. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. And um, Rob, it's great to have you on finally on the podcast. One last question. Do you still have the lone brick? I do indeed. I do indeed. It, it, there, there are actually a couple of faux lone bricks that, that float around that people think are the real one. I still have it. It's sitting in a plastic bag at the bottom of my closet. Um, and it's sooner or is later. It, it, what do they call them? Non-fungible tokens? You, is, <laughs> it's a, an NFT? Yeah. Like you've got a... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but occasionally the brick makes appearances in shows, uh, so it's it's like an Easter egg that we throw it in there every now and again. Oh, cool! Very <laughs> but maybe cool. it'll appear in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, and thanks, Presso, for joining our conversation Thank you so much um, and asking those cool questions. And we will uh, look forward to more cool theater from Lone Brick. I don't know how you do it, my friend. It's just amazing what you do. Well, it's 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 the support that I get across. I mean, particularly in the humanities, but across the university, uh, and the student support is is just outstanding. So uh, I couldn't do it without that. Otherwise, it would just be me standing on a corner shouting. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Spressa. Thank you, Professor Ritter. You can find more information about Lone Brick Theatre in our podcast show description. The English Suite is produced by Jim Esch and students at Widener University, Shpressa Imurai, Sianna Bowers, Gabby Norris, and Chloe DeFlumery. You can find our podcast at anchor.fm and other major podcast directories. We would love to hear your feedback, announcements, and suggestions. Send an email to WidenerEnglishSuite at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>